Praise the Lord. We want uh, Timothy Crawford to come without any delay, and we just want the Lord to bless you through his ministry today and open your hearts and minds to uh, what he has to give us, and uh, it'll bless you. Amen. Everybody let him know you appreciate him today. God bless you, brother. Thank you very much. Let's start with a word of prayer, if we could. Lord, we are continuing, actually, our worship and our time in your presence right now. Be still our hearts and give us ears to hear. Lord, continue hearing. We've been hearing from you already. We are your people, Lord, and the sheep of your pasture. And your sheep hear your voice. And we know you and we follow you and you know us. I thank you, Lord, that you know each individual need here today. You know the depths of our heart. You know the plans you have for us. Lord, not just as individuals, but as a united body, as one body in Christ. We thank you for the privilege of gathering together, Lord, of meeting with one another, imperfect as we are, and yet able to be used by you because of your marvelous grace. Father, we're asking that you would sharpen us during this time as we're here today. Lord, bring to light things in our lives that we need to change, things that we need to stop believing and start believing, things that we need to do, things we need to ask forgiveness for, and things that we need to forgive. Lord, bring to our minds and bring to our hearts the reality of your, your life and your presence. And I pray that you would anoint your word as it goes forth all over our city this morning. And strengthen me, Lord, just to, to be your instrument now and speak what you want me to say. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was young, I had a best friend. His name was Jeremy. We went to kindergarten together. And then, horror of horrors, in first grade, he was in a different class, unfortunately. And then, a little bit later, he actually moved from Lufkin down to um, uh, Port Natchez by Beaumont. Not by Beaumont, Port Natchez Orange. Uh, is that right? Port Orange? No, Port Arthur's like down, Port Nate, this is a long time ago, anyway. So he was, and he might as well have been in Africa for all of that, because I, I never saw him, you know, or didn't see him really for a while. And then, like a year later, I, I went to spend a week with him. And so I, I was there and got to know some of his neighborhood friends. And one day, the, his friends were over at his house, and we were playing, and they got in... I guess a mean mood, and started picking on me. And we were kind of doing this thing of running into rooms and closing doors and you know holding the other people out. And, and I, I don't remember exactly how this happened or what happened, but I remember at one point that I got traumatized. I went into the bed and I was crying because these people were being mean to me and not not loving me, I didn't feel accepted. 
And, and so, the only thing I remember that happened is that one of my socks or something they, they threw out the window <laughs> into the yard. Then someone went down and got it. But at that point, I was so traumatized. I was, I was crying and crying. And, and as soon as I could, I made my way down to the phone and I called my, called my parents. And I called my mom and I, I said, can you come pick me up? And so they made arrangements, and the next day I went home, a, a day or two earlier than planned. And I, I haven't really thought about that incident in a long time, but it, it was one of, the, one of the worst moments of my childhood. <laughs> and you know, as a child, things are bigger, and it's like it, it just affects you, and I remember that. But I think if you were to, to walk around the streets and ask people, do you have a problem with shame, with experiencing a sense of shame? My, my guess is not very many people would say, yes, yes, that's my problem in, in America, in our culture. But if you ask them, have you ever had pain or are you ex have you experienced pain? Have you been hurt? I think most people would say, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Pain in relationships, pain in unmet expectations, disappointments, pain of, of people being unloving and unkind. But what, I, what I'm kind of thinking or guessing is that the concept of shame actually influences a lot more than we think it does. So we've already had an introduction to the sermon last week, um, courtesy of Jake, thank you, <laughs> talking about the, in, in the communion, how the blood and the body of Christ address the problems of, of guilt and shame in our lives. And they do, and that's, that's my topic today. The, the title of my message is Overcoming Shame Through Our Identity in Christ. And um, I told this to one of our neighbors, and, and we kind of got a okay from one and a from the other. <laughs> um, because these are words that I feel like we throw around, but they're very hard to really grasp what they mean. Now, a lot of you sitting in this room have, I mean, we have different levels of, of experience and background in these concepts. Some of you have probably taught courses on all of this, and some of you may have never heard of it, so I don't know. I'm just going to kind of share with you what I'm learning, because I feel like it's, it's very needed. And I'm going to talk about the concept of shame, the concept of identity, and then we're going to talk about Jesus. We're going to spend some time in Romans chapter 6, and I hope to show you how our identity in Christ deals with the problem of shame. So first of all, what is shame? And especially in relation to guilt. I think Jake may have said this last week, but I think it's helpful to think that guilt has to do with what we do. Shame has to do with who we are. And I heard a good analogy. Guilt is stepping out of bounds. Shame is the fact that I just can't make it to the end zone, no matter how hard I try. So apparently the all-time NFL star running back was Emmett Smith. And in the thousands of yards that he rushed, how many times did he step out of bounds? Well, a lot. I don't know. But this is something he did that did not affect 
who he was, the fact that he was the greatest running back of all time so far. <laughs> when we transgress, when we break God's law, we are guilty. We've stepped out of bounds. We've done something that merits punishment and it needs forgiveness. And Jesus is the answer to guilt. He can forgive that sin. He can cleanse us. He can bring us back in bounds within the rules within God's way, back to righteousness. Shame is dealing with who we are. And it's this feeling of, there's something wrong with me. It's not just that I did something bad, you know, but I'm still a good person. It's that I am bad. I am unworthy. And Jesus is the answer for shame also. Jesus is the one who covers that shame who tells us we are worthy again. We belong to someone wonderful. We belong to a family with a good name. There's a, there's a little tiny book called The 3D Gospel that was one of the best introductions I've read to the concept of shame cultures and guilt cultures. And then the third is fear cultures. Shame, honor, guilt, it's the opposite of guilt, righteousness, and then fear and power. So uh, as you look around the world, there's cultures that tend to be dominated by one or the other of these three concepts. In America, we're a guilt culture, guilt and, and righteousness culture. So what does that mean? As children, as we raise our kids, we talk to them in terms like, is this right? Is what you did right? And what are we appealing to? We're appealing to this sort of universal sense of right and wrong that we believe is kind of housed in the conscience of the, of the child and that God actually put there. And so we're saying, it's what you did right. In a shame-honor culture, the parents would tend to raise their children in terms of, is what you did shameful? How does that make us look? And you're appealing to their sense of how the community sees them. So rather than kind of a universal sense does that make sense? It's like, it's like their culture, their community, it's shameful to dishonor your elders. And I'm thinking of Korea where I spent some time and, and not bow when you say hello and things like this. What you did reflects badly on our family name. <clears throat> How dare you spoil our reputation? And this makes a difference in, in many areas of life. It's not my main point today, so I'm not going to go into that, but I just wanted to mention it kind of background information. So it's not that we don't experience shame and honor in America. It's just it doesn't tend to be the first thing we think about. So we tend to think about doing right, or if I didn't do right, I'm guilty. And it kind of also lends, I think, to our sense of independence, because we don't really care if we do something that, that our neighbors don't like, because... It, it tends to be more individualistic. Shame honor cultures tend to be much more like, I got to fit in with my community. I'm part because I'm part. And there's, you know, there's, there's benefits and pros and cons to each kind. I want to get to the scripture as our base, right? So I don't want to say that culture is our measuring stick. God's word is our measuring stick. But that's helpful. And the 3D gospel kind of articulates the fact that if you go to a shame-honor culture and you preach, Jesus died for your sin so you can be forgiven of your guilt, 
It doesn't really mean as much to them as if you explain the fact that Jesus died to cover your shame. You've been adopted into the family of God. You have a new identity. And that speaks to them in a different way. But my point today is that that speaks to us as well because we have also experienced shame. Now, shame can come to us in kind of two primary ways. As I think about it, it's uh, shame that others place upon us by being mean, like me at my friend's house, or it's shame that comes from myself when I have sinned. So when I'm sinning, I'm guilty, but there's also a sense of shame that I did bad, I am bad. I'm the kind of person that did this thing that I'm ashamed of. So the world has an answer to this. And just a couple of weeks ago, after I started preparing this message, my company sent out a newsletter and one of our presidents had written this article based on a, a leadership article that he had read. And the article was about kind of dealing with fears. And the first fear that he listed was the fear of not being enough. So things that can keep you from succeeding in life, the fear of not being enough. I'm afraid I'm not gonna be enough. Here's what the answer was to the fear of not being enough. He says, quote, you are absolutely 100% enough There is no amount of success, money, or power that can fulfill those feelings of inadequacy. You alone are enough. And once you accept that, you will feel an immense sense of freedom. Amen? Careful. (laughs) I did not say amen to that. Because I, I alone, am not enough. I don't know about you. Actually, I do know about you. (laughs) but I mean this okay this is the answer of the world you are 100% enough is that really true is that really helpful okay so and I'm not trying to knock this article I mean he he did what he did and and there's there's a certain amount of help in thinking positively about yourself okay there's I got that but we're in church (laughs) and and we have the We have the freedom to think about life in all of its aspects, not just positive mental attitude that can kind of help for a little bit. But when I get to the end of my life and I die and I face judgment, I am not, I am absolutely not 100% enough. I am not. Jesus is enough. Now you can say amen. Amen. Thank you. but we, as we go through life, we try to make people think that we're good. Or, and usually we try to make them think we're better than we really feel like we are. Or at least we have that tendency. Some of us have learned to be real. And, but, but we wear these masks, right? And Jake and I were talking about how even this, this results in making excuses. Like, I show up and I, I want to give an excuse for being late for example, and we, we were on our way and, and we, we heard the cats fighting. We had to stop and bring the cat inside and dress up his wounds. And, and, and so why do I even say that? I mean, there could be many reasons, but one reason might be, I really don't want you to think that I'm that bad of a person that I can't get somewhere on time. I, I really can, see? I, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm trying to cover that shame. I'm trying, or not to, not to feel shame. And so we make these excuses to try to appear good to people. What if we didn't care? 
No, that's actually a bad question, because we should care, but we'll get to the answer later on. All right, so Adam and Eve, as you know, Genesis 2.25, before the fall, they were, they were naked and not ashamed. They didn't have to wear a mask. They didn't have to try to appear different than what they were. They were fully known and fully loved. And that's, that's true freedom, is being able to be open, honest, transparent, and know that it's okay. I am still loved or lovable. And here, the world has a lot to say about this, too. Just be who you are. Be all that you can be in the army. All right, so, and this is a kind of a transition to identity. Who are you, really? <laughs> uh, identity is another of these terms that I've heard all my Christian life and preached about, and oh my goodness, you know, you listen to someone talk about it for an hour, and you kind of progress from here to here, an understanding of what identity is. It's a huge, huge concept, but it's not one that, that we really think about. I mean, the average person doesn't go out in the morning and say, Okay, who am I? Okay, I'm this, you know. We just live, but here's the deal, that our identity really does affect everything we do. So we should think about it, and especially we should think about our identity in Christ and what that means. All right, it's my first experience, um, the first time I remember hearing this little interchange was in Russia. Someone retold it from a book by Neil Anderson. Um, and he, he has this question, who am I? And the, uh, the Kendrick brothers put it in their last movie, Overcomer. There's this scene where the coach comes into the hospital room and the, the guy in the hospital bed starts asking him, so who are you? Well, I'm whatever his name was, Pete. No, 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 that's your name. Who are you? Well, I'm a, I'm, I'm a track coach. No, 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 that's what you do. Who are you? Okay, I'm a white American male. He says, well, that's obvious. <laughs> but who are you? What is it that defines who you really are? He said, well, I'm a Christian. And he said, why didn't you say that first? <laughs> and we have these things that define us. I'm a, I'm a father, I'm a husband. Uh, those are my roles in life, but they can change. When I went back to Raiden, Oklahoma, where my grandpa's from, uh, every once in a while, I would meet someone and, and they'd say, who are you? I'm, oh, I'm Luther Pierce's grandson. Oh, okay, now I know who you are. See, they know my family. I'm the son of Phyllis Pierce and Robert Crawford. So, uh, and that tells a lot about us, right? You're the son of your father, the daughter of your father. That tells you quite a bit probably about your upbringing and about your heritage. But does that define who you really are, identity? I mean, I wish I could have like one sentence that just makes this perfectly clear in your mind, but I'm going to try in just in a little bit. Uh, identity is, is deeper than any of those things. It's deeper than our name and our role and our job, even than our heritage and upbringing. Our identity is the thing that defines who we are as we go out in life and we will never outlive our identity. So another way to say it is how you see yourself. You will never be able to live higher than the way that you see yourself. Another way that I read this is you can never consistently live in a way that is inconsistent with the way you see yourself. You can never consistently live in a way that is inconsistent with the way you see yourself. 
Okay, that's how identity affects what we do. And, and in terms of addictions and things like that, that's very, very important. How we see ourselves is going to bear fruit in the way that we consistently live and act. So what does scripture say about our identity? We have a new one. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Uh, Romans chapter 6 is a, is a passage that I'm sure you've all read or memorized, and I'm, I'm going to read for us uh, the first 14 verses because it's, it's so rich and powerful, and then I'm going to pull out a few things from here for us to consider more closely. Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? The answer is no. <laughs> no, never, not in your life. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. In order that, as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him, joined to him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. So, I mean, there's so much there. It's so rich, and it, it's kind of one of those, those foundational passages about who we are and our new identity, our new relationship with sin. We're dead. We're dead to sin. Why? Because Christ died, and he, he died to sin, and we enter into that. That's, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm kind of going in circles now in a way, trying to reinforce these things because <laughs> that's how I have to learn it. Um, our, our identity with Christ, being joined to him, taking on his identity as our identity, who he was, who he is, is now in some mysterious way the same thing as who I am. And not that I become God, I'm not a Hindu, okay? But there's, there's something about his identity, his characteristics that now belong to me. They're accessible to me as my identity and who I am. 
And, and all of these things in this passage about who Jesus is, he died to sin, he was buried, and then he rose again to a new life. Those things are accessible to me. I've, I've been identified with him. And there's a particular Greek word that Paul uses in here to express this identification. It's the word baptize. So if you're, if you're following, go back to verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? You probably know this, but the, the Greek word for baptize is, are you ready? Baptizo. <laughs> there is no English word to translate the word baptize. If we had to pick an English word, it would be something like dunk or dip or plunge. You've been dunked into Christ. Okay, do you ever go to a, a fall festival? They'll be coming up soon. Go to the apple or into the dunking booth. And the, the principal sits up on a little, you know, chair and you throw the bean bag if you hit the... <laughs> anyway, it's immerse, submerge in water. But it's not just that. And that's why they didn't use one of those English words to translate the word baptize. They just said, oh, let's call it baptize. Um, because, because we have no, no English word that carries these same connotations. Baptize was, uh, it was done usually ceremonially. It had, it had a symbolic meaning outside of just getting something wet. But the one case that really always kind of made, helped it make sense to me was that baptize was used uh, to describe the dyeing of cloth. So you remember Lydia in Acts, she was a seller of purple cloth. So she was familiar with this process. You, you take cloth made out of linen or cotton or whatever it was, you dipped it, in this dye, you baptize it, and when you take the cloth out of the dye, it is no longer a white cloth or a gray or beige or whatever color it was. It is now, in her case, a purple cloth. I think they even had like, like a single word to describe purple cloth. She, Lydia was a seller of purple cloth, but it doesn't say, it's like, like, there's a whole separate term. Its identity had changed. See that? It, it, it's not just cloth anymore. It's now purple. It had a changed identity after becoming dunked. And so I, I thought, I've always wanted to do this. I thought it'd be really fun to actually kind of show you how this works. So let me get set up really quick. I'm going to do identity change 101. All right. So what I have here is what we'll call dye. And what I have here is a piece of basically white cloth with a couple of little splashes on it. <laughs> All right, so this white cloth, very nice white cloth, you know. We're getting ready to baptize it. In the name of the Father, okay, no. <laughs> We're going to baptize it, and its identity is going to change. It's no longer going to be a white cloth. It's going to be something else. And then I'm going to, yes. All right, so are you ready? 
Here we go. Baptizing the cloth. And remember, we're baptized into Jesus Christ. As many of us as are baptized into Jesus Christ, we are baptized into his death. All right. Hope you guys on Zoom can sort of see this. Yeah. There we go. No longer white, is it? It's a pretty sort of a pinkish. All right. Buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. So, that's baptism. It changes our identity. We've, we had an old nature, an old nature that was full of shame, among other things. When we were baptized into Jesus Christ, we were baptized into his death. In him, we died to that old life. And in verse 4, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too, so you too, so all of us too as Christians might walk in newness of life, different life, newness of life. I was trying to explain this to Serena when you buy new tennis shoes, they're really brand spanking new for the first, you know, 24 hours, maybe, maybe a week or two. But then that newness kind of starts to wear off, doesn't it? <laughs> they're, they're no longer all that new looking. Um, but the newness of life is something that, that doesn't fade, fade away. He says, walk in it. The rest of your life, walk in newness of life. It's a new way of life. It's a way of life that belongs, that is not full of shame. The movie Overcomer the, goes on in another, another place talking about Ephesians chapter 2 and all of the things that it says we are in Christ. I am accepted. I am beloved. I am chosen. I am adopted. I'm part of God's family. That's, again, a whole other study, not for this lesson, but, but those are beautiful truths and great to remind ourselves of. Those are the things that describe our new identity, our pink identity, if you will. <laughs> and, and he says, walk in that. Walk in newness of life. So that, well, it's actually not a command. It's, it's saying, you're doing this. You were baptized and you were raised with Christ so that you might walk in newness of life. It's, as Ron was saying earlier, it's within our grasp. Like, it's not like there's more power available. God, is, God has given us that new life. It's, it's ours to walk in. That is our identity. Let it show. Let's walk in it. Let it come out. For if we have been united, joined, planted together, um, if we've been identified, good word, identified with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, stayed down there in the water, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. So, 
that's identification. That's identity. That's our identity in Christ. It makes a difference in who we are, the way we see ourselves, and the choices that we make, how we live. One of the reasons that I really kind of went this direction on this message is something that, that I've been thinking about in my own life. Uh, it's handling criticism. And there's, I feel like that I don't handle criticism very well, and I, and I never have. And even growing up, I, I kind of said to myself sometimes that I should be or I am my own worst critic. I would rather, I would much rather criticize myself than put something out there and let someone else criticize me. So there's some good things about that, and I, th I feel like that's helped me become a good writer, and that's a lot of what I do at work. It's opened doors for me. I criticize my writing, and I'm like, no, I don't like this. And other people would say, oh, that's fine. But I, like, I, keep, I keep improving. I, I, I try, to, try to make it really good. But it, it becomes unhealthy at the point where, where it becomes obsessive. And, and I, I think, like, I want it to be so good that nobody can possibly say anything bad about it because that would, that would destroy me. Right? That's not healthy. And so, you know, I just was just thinking about this. When people criticize me, is that, is that actually producing a sense of shame? Is that my response, sense of shame? And, and I wouldn't have used that term, right? That's my point. Like, it, these things affect us in ways that we don't realize. But uh, I skipped over this definition that Jake actually shared with me last week from a lady named Brene Brown. She's done a lot of writing on, on shame, and her definition of shame is this. It's the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love. So that's, what, that's one relationship between shame and pain. It, it is a painful experience, and sometimes when we go through experiences and they're painful, the reason they're painful is because it goes deeper to it's attacking who I am. I'm unworthy of love. I'm flawed. I'm flawed. So what God is saying to us, and Joyce, you said this earlier, right after worship, we are not flawed. We are, but we're not. Okay, so that, <laughs> we are flawed, but in Christ, we are not. And that's what you were trying to say is that, you know, over here, I am 100% enough. No, that's false. I am flawed. Over here, Jesus is 100% enough, and I am in him. Yes. So the point is focus on that. Yes. Focus on that. Walk in your newness of life. Don't walk over here and I am 100% enough by myself. All right, so... So I felt like I see this response in myself when I'm criticized that I get defensive and I get angry and I get, and then I might think, well, you know, it's actually probably true that whatever they said critical about me, I, I'm just really not, not good for anything. And so then I get discouraged and downcast. And what I need to do is, is be able to take these two truths, intention, kind of, the fact that 
yes, people will criticize me. Yes, people will hurt me. Yes, people will do mean things and say bad things about me because that's part of life and living in a fallen world, much less a world that's uh, under the control of Satan, the, the prince of the power of the air. All right, so we're going to get those attacks, and they're going to say, you are flawed. And those are attacks on our heart. So the antidote to that, or the protection against that, is this identity in Christ. So this is the breastplate of righteousness, by the way, our identity in Christ. The thing that protects our heart is realizing that, yeah, I'm all that, but I died to all that. I died, nevertheless I live. Both of these truths together, right? I died, yes, I was that. Um, I was an idolater and a, a fornicator. I can't remember the words in 1 Corinthians. Yes, you were, such were some of you, but you are washed, but you are sanctified, but you are justified by the spirit of the living God, by, by the blood of Christ. <clears throat> we now have this breastplate of righteousness, and when shame comes to attack our hearts, this breastplate says, no, I'm going to focus on who I am in Christ. I'm going to focus on my identity in Christ. And it's this process of letting our faith lead our feelings instead of the other way around, right? How often do we let our feelings determine what we believe about ourselves? No, God says, this is what is true about yourself. You believe that, and then the feelings will follow. Yes. So, I am accepted. I am enough <laughs> in Christ. I am enough in Christ. My identity in Christ is secure. This guards my heart, and I can, I can take criticism and learn from it and say, okay, I'll learn from that. I'll do better. I'll be better hopefully next time. I'll learn wisdom. But who I am is not affected. I'm still, I'm still lovable. I'm still worthy in him. Because he chose me and he died for me. God did not give us this principle so we could be comfortable and happy. He gave us this principle so our hearts could be courageous and we could continue going forward in the calling that he has for each one of us, making a difference in this world and preparing for his kingdom to come. That's what he wants for each, each one of us and all of us together as we work together. And even, you know, and that's why it says not, not to judge one another. We can, we can help each other. Maybe you need to point out to me things I need to change or, or I to you. But, but together we understand that, that all of us have this identity in Christ. We are, we are worthy, we are lovable in him. And I am never to judge my brother or sister unworthy of his love. If God loves you, I better do, I better do the same. I tell my children, when they say mean things to each other, no, nobody talks to my daughter that way. Not even their sister. Because <laughs> she's my daughter and I love her no matter what. 
I remember a time that I was in Far East Russia doing some summer camps with young men, and we were in this little tiny fishing village called Sereniki. Actually, they were a whaling village, and they would spear whales and walrus. And they had this one guy, his, his um, raincoat was made of walrus skin. You know, walrus skin is an excellent raincoat. <laughs> I mean, I don't think you can buy a walrus skin raincoat. It's kind of interesting. You know, it would be thousands of dollars if you could. And, and this guy was not rich. He was a poor person, but he had, anyway. So this was the village. We took the young man out to the countryside and we were, we, you know, we cooked out there. We slept in tents. We were doing orienteering practice and then rappelling down this huge, like 80 foot cliff that dropped away to the, to the ocean side. Beautiful, beautiful place. But it was all, it was all very, very taxing. Is doing all that is physically and mentally and spiritually, and I loved it. But I Sunday we came back to the village and had a break. I just needed to go and spend some time with the Lord, so I took this walk along the beach. And you know, there's the waves crashing up and the seagulls up up on the on the side of the hill, and these whale skeletons actually still on the beach. They because they bring the whale to the beach and kind of cut it up there a piece at a time, and the whole village eats on it for a couple of months and. And then there's these vertebrae or rib bones like sticking this this high up and vertebra about this big around. I'm walking along and I'm just I'm thinking, you know, about the past week and what we've done and how the how the boys are responding and just Lord, I I didn't I didn't know what was bothering me. And I finally kind of boil it down to this Lord, are you pleased? Are you pleased with what I've done, with what's going on? And my mind went back to Jesus' baptism when he came up out of the water and the the voice from heaven came and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And not because of what I had done, not because of the camps going well or not going well, but because I am in Jesus, God says to me, you are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. That spoke to me then, and it still does when I think about it, You are his beloved children. You have his identity. He is well pleased. We can walk in that. We can quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. We can let the past be dead and buried with Christ. And we can walk in newness of life. Well, how do we... How do we apply this? I mean, I've kind of sort of tried to say it throughout, but one thing is if you've never become a child of God, then you need to do that. Um, It's very simple. By faith, receive him, and his identity becomes yours. Um, We'd be glad to talk with you more about that if anyone would like to. Another way is maybe God is telling you to follow the Lord in baptism. As I assume most of you know, 
Christians have practiced the rite of baptism, and we have our baptismal right back there that we do here every once in a while. When someone has made the choice to follow Christ, um, they go and they get baptized in water, and, and that water baptism is a symbol. It's a symbol of, um, of this having taken place spiritually. And what we read this morning, that I have been baptized into Jesus Christ. My identity has become joined with him, with his. That's something that takes place in a spiritual realm. It's not, it doesn't take place when you go in the water. But the water is a physical sign to the, the believing community that this has happened to me inside. And I would encourage you to do that. If you're interested, you can talk to us more. But finally, accept your new identity in Christ and walk in the new life that he's given us. I hope that something I've said has been helpful. And at least uh, if you've heard all of it before, it's a good reminder. Christ has died for us. He loves each of us more than words can tell.